0: Good morning, morning. won't you join me please in a word of prayer, let us pray. Good and gracious God, we thank you for the gift of this new day, a day we have not seen before, a day full of opportunity to worship you in spirit and in truth and to love and serve our neighbor in need. Lord, our hearts are heavy for the people of Haiti and Afghanistan, for those who have suffered from the floods in the western portion of our state and Tennessee, for those in the path of Tropical Storm Henri, and for our teachers and students who embark upon another school year. We ask, Lord, for your blessings upon all of them, upon this nation, upon this earth. We seek Your will in all things. We ask that you would cause justice, righteousness, and peace to come to this earth. Lord, we ask now that as your word goes forth, it may be a word of challenge and conviction, a word of liberation, of healing, of promise, of hope, of empowerment, most of all, of grace and mercy. We thank you, God, for who you are and for the fact that you have claimed us as your own beloved children. All this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. <clears throat> My sermon text for today is the first lesson assigned for this Sunday, namely the, book, the Old Testament book of Joshua, chapter 24, verses 1 through 2a, and then skipping down to verses 14 through 18. My sermon title for this morning is actually imported from the last verse of our gospel lesson for today. Namely, John chapter 6, verse 69, which is coming to know and believe. Coming to know and believe. This Old Testament text from Joshua chapter 24 is seemingly paired up with our gospel lesson from John 6 due to their emphasis on or concern with choice. That is the human capacity to choose to follow God or not. The context of this concluding chapter of Joshua is the chosen people of God, the Israelites, conquest of the promised land after having been freed from slavery down in Egypt and wandering through the desert wilderness for 40 years. They have swept through this homeland promised to their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, centuries earlier, sweeping in from the Jordan River in the east and subduing and conquering the native Canaanite populations all the way to the Mediterranean Sea in the West. It has, for the most part, been an unimpeded victorious march led by Joshua, Moses' one-time protege. At the end of this triumphal book of God's people, entering into their heritage and each tribe receiving its allotment of territory, Joshua calls them all together at Shechem, a strategic and significant town in the very center of the nation, for a renewal of the covenant they have with their God, Yahweh. The intervening verses, which are not included in our textual reading, are God's recital of all that God has done for them along their journey, all that He has brought them through, all the deliverances from the hands of their enemies that God has wrought on their behalf. And so our assigned text is the challenge to the Israelites for loyalty or fidelity to this God, who has done so much for them. God has already chosen them, in other words, and now they are asked to choose him or not. They are warned of the temptations of idolatry, that is, fealty to other gods, and are exhorted to remain faithful to the God that chose and delivered them. In a very popular and famous verse, one that can be found plentifully on numerous plaques and printings in every Christian bookstore everywhere. Verse 15 reads, Now if you are unwilling to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's like an ultimatum. The gauntlet has been thrown down. And so most places that display this verse are proudly letting you know where they stand. The history of choice, The history of having to choose whom you or whom we will serve, that is where our ultimate allegiance will lie, is prevalent throughout the Scriptures. After all, the first two of the Ten Commandments are, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make any idols or graven images for yourself to bow down and serve them. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, God says, See, I have set before you this day life and good, death and evil. I have set before you this day life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life so that you and your descendants may live. In First Kings 18, at the looming contest on Mount Carmel between Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal, Elijah challenges the gathered people of Israel, How long will you go limping with two different opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. The people, sadly, are silent therein and do not respond to him. David seems in Psalm 16, Those who choose another God multiply their sorrows. But the Lord is my chosen portion and cup. The prophet Joel, on the third chapter, in the third chapter of his book, declares concerning the coming day of the Lord, multitudes, multitudes are in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Later on, Jesus will challenge his own disciples in Matthew 16, who do people say that I am? And after entertaining popular public opinions, Jesus declares, but who do you say that I am? shortly thereafter, in Matthew 19, Jesus challenges the rich young ruler, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, give it to the poor, and come, follow me. Make that choice. At which the man declines and departs sorrowfully, Scripture says, because he had great possessions. In fact, choosing his possessions over following Jesus. And finally, in today's gospel lesson from John 6, Many of Jesus' disciples, upon hearing His rather bizarre and unorthodox teaching, respond, This teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? Scripture then sadly relates, Because of this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer went about with Him, causing Jesus, no doubt, despairingly to ask the twelve, Do you also wish to go away? So there is a theme in our text this morning of choice. There is an open acknowledgement in these two texts and throughout Scripture that one is not coerced robotically to follow the Lord. No one is forced. One can say, this is too difficult, and turn back, and turn away, and stop following. Examining this famous verse 15 yields three possibilities for the people's ultimate allegiance. Choose this day whom you shall serve. Number one whether the gods your ancestors served in the region beyond the river, indicating past generations, or, number two, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are currently living, namely the current cultural circumstances. But as for me and for my house, number three, we shall serve the Lord. So, we can serve our ancestors, gods of the past. We can serve the gods of the current cultural context. Or we can serve the Lord. Now, when we use the language of gods, we have to be careful. Almost no one admits to worshiping or serving anyone or anything but God with a capital G. So when I say idols, false gods, or gods with a lowercase g, I'm referring to anything in life which occupies perhaps most of our time, most of our energy, most of our money, most of our passion, and most of our attention. Let me try to make this as non-threatening as possible. Let's say my life revolves around the sport of cricket. I'm either always watching it or playing it, always researching it or reading about it or have my kids play it. Now let's say I rarely or never read my scripture or pray or attend worship or go to Bible study or receive communion or fellowship with the saints because my passion for cricket doesn't allow me To do that time wise, I think one could make the argument that cricket has become my God, even though I would never consider myself as worshiping the sport of cricket. But in reality, cricket has become my ultimate allegiance in life. So I think this may call for introspection, conviction, repentance on the part of all of us, right? I'll start with myself if that helps. Books reading, study, can arguably become more important than it ought. And NBA basketball, I'd watch an entire game between the two worst teams in the entire league, neither of whom I have any allegiance towards whatsoever, and I would do it over and over and over again. So the gods of the past were the gods of the current cultural context. Family can become an idol. So can friends. So can patriotism. The Democratic or Republican parties, any system of government, capitalism, communism, socialism, technology, smartphones? Somebody say ouch. iPads? Surfing the internet or YouTube? College sports? Somebody say ouch. Pro sports? Say ouch again. Hobbies, tennis, golf, soccer, baseball, football, basketball, your job, your career, working out, weightlifting. You see, God exists when all those things disappear or dissipate. And when you weigh the time, energy, money, and investment we make into one over and against the other. Ouch. Now in the text, notice that the people, for once in Scripture, respond correctly and appropriately. Then the people answered in verse 16, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord that has brought us up and out of slavery, who did these great things in our sight. He protected us and drove out before us our enemies. Therefore we also, along with you Joshua, will serve the Lord, for He is our God. So, in the heat of the moment, when the gauntlet is thrown down, when the ultimatum is given and the die is cast, the people rise to the occasion and give their response, one presumes, that the Lord desires. Now, allow me, if you will, to turn only two chapters forward to the second chapter of the following book of Judges, which yields this ominous turn. Quote, unquote, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work which the Lord had done for Israel. But that generation was gathered to their fathers, meaning passed away, and therefore arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work which he had done for Israel. So they forsook the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, Pagan gods with a lowercase g. So right away something leaps out at me. There is a connection of sorts between knowing and serving the Lord and beholding his works. You see this generation of people here in Joshua 24 was just one generation removed from their foreparents. Who beheld the ten plagues in Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, manna and quail from heaven, water from the rock, and the Lord leading them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They had actually seen all that and so therefore had passed it on. This generation here not only had heard that first-hand testimony, but themselves had seen the Jordan River parted, the walls of Jericho come tumbling down, and the sun stand still in the sky for a whole day while they gained victory over the five Amorite kings at Gibeon. So this generation was one that was well acquainted with, quote-unquote, the works of the Lord. But when time passes... And another generation arises, and then another generation. There appears to be a diminishing of the memory of the past. The first-hand accounts of prior generations become second-hand testimony. Then third-hand foggy oblivion, fourth-hand myths, fifth-hand superstitions, and sixth-hand tall-tales nonsense. I'm reminded of when Jesus said at least twice in John's gospel, Believe in me, but if you don't, at least believe in the works themselves. But when the works themselves dissipate and disappear, how is one to believe generations later? What eventually happens, my friends, over a period of time without obvious works of the Lord to behold, is the reversal of verse 13, which is one of the intervening verses left out of our text in the middle of our text today. God reminds this generation that those military victories which you benefited from were not by your own sword or by your own bow. I gave you land, God says, on which you have not labored, cities which you have not built, and yet you dwell there. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive yards which you did not plant. God had previously warned them in Deuteronomy when you have eaten and when you are full when you have built goodly houses and you live in them when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all you have is multiplied beware lest your hearts be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. Beware lest you say in your heart my power and the might of my hand has gotten me all this wealth. You shall remember that it is the Lord your God who gives you power to get wealth. May I continue with what I hope and pray is a sanctified, relevant, and applicable progression. It is God who gives you your family and friends. It is God who gives you your job. And your career. God who gives you your hobbies and interests and passions. It is He who gives you your science and technology, your college and pro sports, your entertaining distractions. But when the works of the Lord, the miracles of God, seem so distant, seem so much in the past, we all too naturally fall away. Our fidelity and faithfulness subside. We become removed, detached, dispassionate. Our own hand has gotten us all this. And in an ironic reversal of there arose a Pharaoh over Egypt who knew not Joseph, there arises an unwittingly idolatrous generation who knows not the Lord and reaches out instead for other things to supply their ultimate meaning and their ultimate significance. And so I think at least part of what we must do is to rethink and retool what we mean by the work of the Lord. Some people say we no longer live in an age of miracles. And yet every time we gather, we believe the bread and wine of communion become the very body, the very blood of Christ, which forgives us not just some of our sins, the small ones, but not really the big ones, but in reality, all, all of our sin. When the world tells us Monday through Saturday that change and transformation are not possible, we hear and hear on Sunday that they are more than possible. And in fact, they are currently happening. When every other person out there tells you you aren't worthy, you are not deserving, you don't measure up, you are incompetent and inadequate, and you should just settle in all your expectations, there is a voice and a presence in here that says you are of infinite value. You are significant beyond measure. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are the apple of God's eye and created in His own divine image and likeness. People say we no longer live in an age of miracles. Yet the Wright brothers flew a simple glider 12 feet on the windswept dunes of North Carolina. And 66 years later, we were on the moon. People cooked meals over open fires, and then in ovens, and now we have a small box, you put them in and punch a couple buttons, and they're ready-made. We've gone from small, staticky radios to flat-screen, high-definition TVs. Masses and masses of people dying from disease and illness to innumerable vaccines and organ transplants and unimaginably delicate, precise, life-saving surgeries and procedures. We're not all that far from women and minorities not being able to vote at all to having had an African-American president and women and minorities at the top of both parties' levels of leadership. People say we no longer live in an age of miracles, positing it is the human mind and all its profound intricacies which account for all the recent rapid progress. And and yet I would maintain a la Deuteronomy and Joshua that it was God who gave us a cerebrum, cerebellum, thalamus, hypothalamus, amygdala, hippocampus, and frontal parietal, occipital, and temporal lobes. The greatest miracle of all. Thank you, Cindy. One whose significance never diminishes, dissipates, or fluctuates. is that in the midst of all this talk about choice, all this reflection and speculation concerning choosing wisely or appropriately is the fact that you are already chosen. You are not so much the subject as the direct object. It is not so much that you choose God or Baal or Ashtaroth, etc. as God chose you. At the end of John chapter 6, the disciples appear to be choosing Jesus. And in a sense they are. When Jesus asks them, do you also wish to go away? And Peter memorably replies, Lord to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. But a mere nine chapters later, Jesus will more fundamentally remind them, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And of course, Ephesians chapter 1 reminds us that in fact, God chose us from before the foundation of the very world itself. And so perhaps Peter's final expression in verse 69 of our gospel lesson in John chapter 6 is a fitting and appropriate coda to this whole enterprise of choice. Joshua challenges the people, choose this day whom you shall serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Times change, time passes, people's faith ebbs and flows, miracles and the work of the Lord seemingly come and go. God steps in and reminds us, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. And the eternal truth remains unchanged and rock solid. And then Peter concludes here in this text, we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Did you catch that? We have come to believe and know. It didn't happen in a flash of lightning. It wasn't sudden, instantaneous, a jarring epiphany like St. Paul and others had. No, we have come to believe and come to know this Jesus. It's an ongoing exposure, an ongoing reminder, an ongoing process. Sometimes I see it, sometimes I don't. Sometimes my faith is strong. Sometimes it's weak. Sometimes I have clarity. Sometimes I have murky confusion. Sometimes the angels sing. And sometimes there's a deafening silence. Sometimes the trumpets blast. And sometimes the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. Sometimes I love myself and sometimes I don't. Sometimes people like me and sometimes they don't. Sometimes there's mountains and Other times there's valleys. Sometimes there's the dazzling beauty of multicolored flowers. And other times there's a blanket of cold, white, wet snow. But through it all, I've come to know and I've come to believe it's a dawning realization born amidst the joys and pains of life, the victories and defeats of life. I've come to know and I've come to believe. I've come to know that God loves me and I've come to believe God accepts me. I've come to know I'm not alone. And I've come to believe that we are all important. I've come to know that God heals broken hearts. And I've come to believe He will see you through. I've come to know the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And I've come to believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I've come to know joy, and I've come to believe in Sunday morning. Am I alone? Am I alone? Do I have a witness? Say yeah. Say yeah. Say yeah. Hmm. Our journey here is quite a journey, is it not? Coming to know and believe. Amen. Thank you for your continued support of the ministries of St. Philip Lutheran Church. If you're